everyone, and welcome to Horusperia. My name is May, and today we have a very special pod. Um, you know, this podcast is really based on me trying to bring international horror movements more to an American audience and see how transnational cinema works together. But we really haven't had an opportunity to have someone that is from the international community come on. But today that changes, and I'm so stoked to have uh, this guest on. Everyone, please welcome Reese Jones. Is this right? Say hello. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> hello. Thanks for having me. <laughs> oh my goodness. Hi, Reese. Um, hey. So, Reese, you, I always like guests putting into like what they do on their own terms. So okay. do you mind sharing like what you do? What are you interested in? Let's talk. Sure. Um, so, yeah. So thank you for having me. Yeah. So my name is Reese, Reese Jones. Um, it's like a Bond introduction, Reese, Reese Jones. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'm an interdisciplinary <laughs> PhD in literature and film uh, at the University of Liverpool in the UK. Um, and kind of in a nutshell, in terms of just my, my, my research, what my thesis is about is trying to kind of set out, map a kind of cultural, intellectual history of the term objection, which I'm not going to bore you or anybody listening um, with, but essentially it's a queer Marxist cultural theory project that looks at a bunch of different media, and one of those is uh, contemporary horror cinema, So, uh, which is great because... I'm just a big horror fan anyway, although I'm gonna like, I have to say like now, you know, I have, a, I have an actually terrible memory, the memory of a goldfish. So I forget real people's names, um, students are a nightmare. I love Zoom teaching because you see their names in the squares. But yeah, so if there's like pauses, that's me Googling a film character's name. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's um, absolutely fine. Uh, I also like Zoom classes for that reason too. Like it may has made things so much easier in that sense. Um, no, but I love that abjection is central to your research because mm -hmm. abjection is actually really central to my class too. Their textbook Ooh. is called Abject Terrors. I make yes. monstrous feminine uh one of the main tenements of their class and that's a theory Ooh. also based in you know gender as abjection mm -hmm. um what attracted you to that topic specifically like can you talk about how it began to formulate for you yeah it was a long trajectory really i mean um when i started my masters one of the first things we had to do was write a little intro essay on anything choose a theory you know we were doing like a very core intro to post 45 theory and one of the things that got touched upon was the was abject art, um, and you know what that looked like. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't have an art background at all. Uh, like I said, I came from this very traditional undergraduate, so I was like, mm, "This is cool." And at the time, I was reading uh, we, one of the the texts that we set was Crash by J. G. Ballard, um, which is a well, like all of his texts are a bit like a bit, a bit, a bit strange, um, yeah. and. But what I was really interested in the text was, well, there are all of these kind of like uh, homoerotic undertones, which is like, you know, I'm gay. So everything I read, I'm like, it's gay. <laughs> How can I make this gay? Yes, um, exactly. Same, same, same. Um, so, and at that point, it was like, just, I just happened to be thinking about that and then learning about this idea of the abject. And, you know, I was, I was like looking at this abject art exhibition online and I was like, but what is abject? I've like never heard this word before. You know, I don't know what it means. Um, and then I looked it up and I was like, mm, 
I still don't quite know what it means because there are so many definitions <laughs> of what the there object is. is. Yeah. You know, it's yeah, you know, yeah. it's a verb, it's a noun, it's it's used in social context, it's used in completely in all sorts of ways. And that kind of led me then to Christeva, Christeva's essay on powers of horror, as yes. she begins to formulate the abject. Um, but for me, what I was interested in was this is such an interesting um, concept, but it's one that gets, you know, this idea of, you know, abjecting, of pushing in a way an awareness of something, of something threatening the borders of the self. But it also, to me, really struck me as something that could be widened out for social process. Now, of course, it has been in other yes. people's work, but I wasn't aware of that at the time. I was like, well, why is not? So I started writing about the abjection of like queerness in Crash. And then really from then, I just haven't been able to leave it behind because yeah. it's such um, a sticky term. It's also, su- it has such mileage critically in terms of the things that you can do with it. Um, but also it has, as all of these theoretical terms do, interesting, oftentimes problematic and complicated uh, histories in different disciplines. You know, like you say, so the abjection in horror it means something really fixed, which in itself I think is a little bit ironic when you think about what abjection as an idea is, which is it's this idea of like destabilizing and, and border crossing. And, and actually we have such a fixed idea of what it looks like in horror films. That's kind of where my research is kind of starting from. And it's then very influenced then with contemporary Marxist feminist writing is now starting to use this term abject uh, to say, you know, a lot of the time in a lot of the orthodox Marxist accounts of things of the political economy of capitalism, you know, Marx is very interesting in tracing value. What he isn't so invested in, because it's not his project, is talking about those moments where value falls off the grid, you know, racialized labor, gendered labor, reproductive labor, and the like identity groups that are objected in order to, to make the system go. And so this term abject starts coming in because this it's like in all these theories of the political economy, it kind of can be a bit clinical, a bit detached yes. mm-hmm. from, you know, real people, real bodies. And of course the abject is so enmeshed in those kind of processes. So that's kind of like, I'm obsessed with it, which I think, you know, <laughs> it's good because I've been researching it for so long now. Um, right. But yeah, sorry, that's a very long winded one. No, that's a beautiful, beautiful answer because that sort of inspires the theme that you chose for this episode, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yes. uh, so we're going to be looking at Robert. So we decided on Robert Eggers, The Lighthouse, mm-hmm. The Witch, uh, the French film Martyrs. I forget the directors. Do you know the uh, Pascal Logier is yes. Martyrs. There you I'm go, impressed there you go. that I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> I was more actually like I saw the name visually, but I was like, I'm mm-hmm. not gonna try saying yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um and then finally the Boulet brothers, Dragula, specifically their Halloween uh, special movie that came out last year, right? Yes, I'm obsessed. Yes. I'm obsessed with it. I'm <laughs> I, all of these films, and, and Raw. If you wanted to talk about Raw, oh yes, well. yes, I'm sorry, uh, Julia Ducournau's Raw. Yes, those oh, were. Oh yes, I love the way you said that. I won't be saying her name. I, <laughs> <It's> I, <true. laughs> I actually teach Raw for the Monstrous Feminine, so uh, oh, I've had wow. a lot of practice saying her name. Yeah. Okay. No, but that's so, great. Uh, kind of an aside. This is related. Have mm-hmm. you? Do you all have Servant over there, the TV show? It actually stars Toby Kebbell, who I know is like a 
sort of famous British. Artist. I haven't seen it. No. Okay, so it's it's not M Night Shyamalan didn't create it, but he executive produced it. So of course that's okay. like the name associated with it. Mm-hmm. But uh, Julia directed a lot of their recent episodes. But it's really good. It's it's. it's I don't know how you feel about M. Night Shyamalan, but uh, especially if you like his work or if you like mm-hmm. the vibe of that work, I yeah. strongly suggest it. And yeah, Toby Cabell, is Toby Cabell as famous as I feel like he is over there? Is he not famous at all? Like I say, like names. Um, so like okay. I've probably recognized his face, but I've got no idea. This is the thing. I'm actually a terrible film PhD student. Because <laughs> anytime somebody's like, have you watched this thing outside of the very limited range of things that I watch? I'm like... No, <laughs> um, so, so he probably is. Don't let I, I can't speak. So just because I don't know who he is doesn't mean he's not famous. Over here. No, I, just, I, I only knew him from the Black Mirror episodes uh, oh, right, from okay. like season two. He was the one with the one with Jodie Whittaker where. Uh, yes. Like, you know which one I'm talking about, but I yes. think with the eye, right? OK, yes. he's a boyfriend. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah. Well, then I do. <laughs> see, I did though. Um, you see, we got there eventually. But that's why yeah. I guess I, I always had this perception that he must be well known over there because I now it's an American show, and I'm like, oh, you decided to cross over. <laughs> that's it what I feel. Cool though. No, it's it very good. good. Um, I don't want to spoil the plot because I think trying to explain the plot spoils it. But okay. it essentially, has to do with like this this young girl like a teenager that is being a nanny for a reborn doll. Do you know what a reborn doll is? I think so. That's but- like those trauma dolls that a lot of women with miscarriages get. Um, right. And so okay, she was know. hired. Was <laughs> she was, so she was hired to be a nanny uh, for oh this doll. I'm and I, I th- Yes. <laughs> and so it's up on <laughs> Apple TV. Do you all have Apple TV? Yes. I okay, will. Cool. I'm going to, I'm going to hunt that one down. Because I, yes, please. Because premise. right now it's in the middle of season two and Julia directed like the first four episodes and, uh, and they were really great direction from her. Uh, so yeah, so those are the movies that we're going to look at. And so, um, I guess before we get too deep into the meat though, I kind of want to talk a little bit about how we know each other. So I, uh, submitted to this, uh, queer horror anthology that was being put together by Lindy Blake, who I actually already taught in my class before I Ooh. applied. So I was like a bit fangirling and uh, Heather Petricelli. That's yes. yes, Heather Petricelli. And uh, I got in, which was like, I was made my life. Um, <laughs> but a, a couple months later, I then got a call for Reese's panel and uh, mm-hmm. he likes me enough to be like, yes, come on in. So I guess let's talk a little bit about that panel. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm doing a chapter for, for that, that collection as well, in theory. <laughs> I've said I will. Um, and I would, I, and I want to, <laughs> I just have to do it and plenty of time, which is good. Um, <laughs> but yeah. And of course, Linny Blake is a household name, which is exciting um, yes she's also been so lovely in all the emails she I, love. I know it's it like again I'm still like I feel strong imposter syndrome right now <laughs> I'm like I don't think these people know I'm not legit <laughs> you are very much you have a podcast Anything oh my god anyone very legit <laughs> am I gonna regret saying that yeah probably. <laughs> um but that's what I think anyway um yeah so from that so um Basically, over here, you know, like you guys have SCMS, which is like the big, big. This sort of okay. Story. Is it the big, big one? I don't. I don't. I'm still okay. green. <laughs> okay. Well, Probably. so, 
So basically, you know, you have all these different academic associations. And so you guys have Society for Cinema Media Studies, which Mm. we think in the UK is the biggest one. The biggest one for us. Like, okay, okay, if you get on SMS, that's great. The British version of that is the British Association for Film and Television Studies. And then you've got all the different groups within it, one of which has just been set up, which is horror film studies. Um, So they put a call out to say, we want people to kind of run events. Does anybody want to run an event? And I was like... I want to run an event. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, Make I'm it gay. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I want to run a gay event. Um, <laughs> and, and, I, and I just need to find other gays to, to run my event with me. Um, oh and that really me. was very much the, the premise. So, yeah, so, you know, spoke to, spoke to the, um, the, the organiser of the SIG, which is uh, Laura Mee, who's a, she's a senior lecturer at Hertfordshire, at a university over here does some really cool work on horror. She's got a book on The Shining. Um, which oh, is super cool. Um, and I was like, oh yeah, I, I, I'd be up for doing an event. And she was like, okay, do it. <laughs> so then it was like to the drawing board. And then that's kind of where it was born was that, okay, let's do a politics of horror event, an event that kind of draws on different PhD experiences. Um, and, it's, and this is why it's great that you're contributing. I'm so excited um, because we wanted, we just wanted voices that had not yet prominent in the horror film study scene because like all academic disciplines but I think it isn't it is an issue that we will discuss in the workshop you know horror film studies is like is like me it's like white cis guys you know and it's predominantly white straight cis guys um and then there's a handful of of you know queers thrown in and that's really shaping the discipline um in lots of ways and 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 I don't want to overstate that of course there's lots of really amazing work being done I'm just talking about the event the work that sometimes gets centered within within the kind of communities and so it was like let's let's do something fun so yeah so then it was like we put the call out I I deliberately didn't put the call out to everybody because when you put a call out to everybody a bunch of white men apply you know like me (laughs) Um, because they there's always that there's always that feeling and entitlement They, they, they it's like you were talking about imposter syndrome earlier it's not something that I think a lot of white cis guys in academia struggle with right. um they feel like they can entitled to own all those spaces and you know when I speak as a, a cis white guy myself um and so we I put it out I shared it with Heather who uh, one of the editors and I was like you know this because they had said you know we, we want to put this collection together which is about queer people writing about this stuff and I was like okay so these are exactly the kind of people that I would like to be involved in the event um and so yeah so uh, that politics of horror event will be that. It's, it's an informal discussion between a group of PhDs from a bunch of different countries, a bunch of different institutions, part-time funded, you know, all, all walks of life, essentially, um, different ages. And it's basically that it's actually what, what I want the event to be is to start a conversation about not only the politics of horror on screen, like the stuff we're going to talk about today, but also the politics of the discipline. Um, and the the kind of optics and erasures that are bound up in that. Um, So I'm very excited. Um, Yeah, that was so beautifully said because, um, I mean, like, I'm so excited. First, I was just excited to meet outside of, like, my local circle because Mm -hmm. I feel like that's been really – and it's really great where – I love the university where I teach and my colleagues and whatnot, but, like, I am not from this area. You know, I'm from the Caribbean, Mm -hmm. and I myself, I feel like there is more to understand in a global 
diaspora rather than just, as you said, sticking to these insulated spaces. I myself ran into, and the whole reason why I wanted to do a PhD is I got this global horror class. When Mm -hmm. I inherited it, it was very like, you know, we're going to show you slashers. We're going to, you know, it was very Western and European based. Mm -hmm. And even I when I inherited it, I was like, I mean, I'm going to turn this inside out. And I really have since then. But the thing with this, yeah, like I've included the Middle East. Uh, There's now a whole, uh, uh, there's a whole group project based on race and horror films. Like um, I really tried to make it more of a cultural study, sociology kind of class rather than, you know, yeah. But, um, but actually a lot of the problem with when I did that is I was writing my own, uh, sources for them to read because the representation for uh, these horror studies mm-hmm. just was not there and yeah. uh, and so like they study mainly off of a video textbook that I made based on you know dissertations that I have read also tied Ooh. in with uh, you know maybe documentaries I have read there's like just no central that. text that feels a uh, representative but this whole it's project so and 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 um, you know, from the panel to the uh, anthology that we were accepted to write for, I like these are the changes I want to be a part of, because otherwise, you know, like I feel like we kind of talked a little bit about this before we started. It's like if our voices aren't there in these spaces, then it makes it even more difficult for artists to get that work, you know, because 100%. there's not people like them also representing the spaces where this art is being discussed or critiqued or or pushed forward as legitimate. And I think, um, you know, yes, of course you're a white cis man, but like you also, I also think it's very important that queer people write their own histories, which right now, queer people have barely had access to their histories, especially in horror studies, especially in film studies. And so- I'm um, so with you. I think yeah I think I you're, my main idea is I, I feel like that's so inspires inspiring that you did that and also like having met uh the other panel uh members uh quite a few times now like I find each of them so inspiring for the different uh walks they come from like you said like some of them only do this part-time but it's just as legitimate and there are like other concerns that come with that like I don't know if yeah. I would would be able to tackle the mental acumen it takes to do this part-time no, you know but I guess let's, I guess, get to the exciting part. So um, I guess, you know, one question, like what made you not only choose these films for us to talk about, but also the theme, like, like, can you kind of put together your brain, like where it all came together for you? Um, so the, the reason I chose these films really is because, so for the last, last semester I was teaching uh, on a module that Liverpool runs with their their media students, which is queer film and documentary. And I just loved it because uh, my teaching was quite limited on it, but I, I just felt like a student. I learned so much about, you know, queer context, queer theory, queer history, history of representation, things that I was really, I was like a bad gay. I was like not plugged into these conversations in, in, in a way that I, and I think what it made me realise was, is that in a, in a, in a really kind of, meaningful way the work that I want to do and I'm trying to do with the thesis has actually always been queer even though my primary sources are much more kind of uh, Marxist 
feminist critical race theory. You know, in that sense, I'm not centering because I think it's a, it's a queer theory thing as well. There's a, there's a lot of queer theory out there that I've been exposed to in this module, which has changed my perception of queer theory, which again has been white, cis male dominated, talking about representation of gay men for a long time, which has made me kind of be like, mm, I don't want to do that. I want to do something much more intersectional. And actually through the module, I kind of realized, you know, some of this stuff is great. And then I had a kind of a, a, a talk allocated at the end of the module where I could talk about queer horror. You know, that was what the, the module was like, oh, you can do queer horror. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, and what was interesting to me was that it was like, there are two, there are different directions to go in because the, the mantra of the module was, you know, queer film is queer uh, content about queers made by queer people for queer people, you know? So like the first thing we looked at was like Tangerine. And it was yes. like, this is incredible. And then I was like, that's, that's, then that was kind of the sentiment that, that, that motivated the whole module. And I was like, what I want to do is actually something slightly different. Um, in, in these films and, and things that I was talking about, and I, we, we talk from predominantly about the Eggers films, is that you know that, that's not made by a queer person. And some people to varying degrees would challenge the, the to, to what extent queerness is centered as an actual part of storyline. I mean, I think certainly particularly for The Witch. Um, but you know, there is, a, I think, a very much a queer sensibility that permeates these films. And I, and I wanted to get the students and kind of me the opportunity to think about what does queer mean when we're not just talking about the politics of representation, you know, like we're not just talking about how many queers are on screen, like what does it mean? And it, does it still get to be queer? Does it count, doesn't it, you know? I love that because, you know, I almost got into it in one of my classes just on Tuesday. Um, I have a gay professor and he was like, I'm not sure queer sensibility can even exist anymore. And I like mm -hmm. sat in class like, what does that mean? And he's like, well, I could be wrong, but I challenge you to tell me otherwise. And I was like, give me a week. I need time <laughs> to like process what you just said, because I think that that is obviously not true. But then the onus is, well, then what does that mean? So I think that that is such an important question. I can't wait to see how it sort of evolves mm -hmm. across these films, uh, which, mm -hmm. I, as you said, like, I, it's hard, other than maybe Dracula, it's hard to argue that any of them are directly queer. There's moments in Raw and mm -hmm. absolutely, you know, like, I know Robert Eggers and Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe have all, like, said various uh, things about queer interpretations of The mm -hmm. Lighthouse, but I absolutely agree that there's a queer sensibility that runs throughout all of these films. Mm -hmm. um, which one was, like, did was one of them, like, a sparking point for you? Um, they all, they spark different things. I mean, I think I would say that in terms of the ones that I, the films that I've been working with the longest, it, longest, and that's why I'm so excited to hear your thoughts on Raw, because I watched that very recently um, and loved it, but I haven't really fully thought through yeah. exactly how I feel about the film. I love Oh, it. man. Um, I love that you said that, because this is going to sound kind of weird. Uh, I'm not sure I like Raw, but okay. I love how it was made and yes. I love what it represents. Um, I myself, like I, it's not a film that I ever feel like I need to rewatch, but especially when it yeah. came to uh, coding the object 
the abject in a gender. I mm-hmm. feel like that film does a lot more than many other films have come out uh, in cinematic history overall. And I think yeah. especially one thing that, and I was talking about this with a friend the other day, that uh, is sort of common. It's sort of like female directors now making rape revenge films and sort mm-hmm. of trying to use rape as this uh, like reclamation tool and i'm not sure if that's ever successful that's just one of my opinions and of course i think that's an argument for another time but what i really love about raw is that it sort of makes that argument more than any other film without ever even using rape directly you know and i feel like Mm -hmm. it's also like a very feminine film and i think that that is really great yeah yeah i mean and so funny. We'll talk about it more because I, that's what I that's what I truly love about that film is these really like relatable comedic uh, sibling yeah. moments between the two. It's sisters. a coming of age story. I feel. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I agree. You know, preparing for this, I was reading a couple of interviews with the director, and I was like, hmm, interesting, because I didn't read, I didn't take from your film what you necessarily put into it, but that yes. to me is what queer approaches to film can be we you know like if it happens to align with the politics of what was put into it then wonderful but if we have to like mash it up and miss those bits out and critique those bits and just be like no but this is actually the bit that i liked or this is the bit that it's really doing something interesting in a queer context that's our prerogative as queer critics and there's something we can queer the work yes. even if the work itself and, and i think that was something really interesting over the course of the the, the semester is that um, it was really, the convener would often ask, once we'd had a long discussion about the pros and cons of all these different films, so is it, do you think that this is queer? And it would be like a sticking point because, and and it kind of, it was like a trick question in a way, but it, it, it fostered really good discussion, but you know, to define definitively what queer is and what that looks like on screen means that it cannot be queer. So, you know, I think that's something that I, that's why I've chosen these films in a way, is because yes, some of, some of them have explicit moments. And I think Dragula is a great example of, of explicit engage. I mean, I think that, that the special is as much a documentary. And I think yeah, it's, it's engaging with the, 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 the realness of queer struggle and queer lives in the US, which is brilliant. These other films don't do that, but they still do really interesting things in a queer, and that we can understand as queer. Who gives a shit whether, you know, Robert Pattinson or what he was doing was queer? He's not queer. We're not, do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, yeah. That's a conversation to bring to the table is that there's a politics to that as well. But that's part of the fun, you know? So Yeah, hmm. absolutely. And you know what I love that you said that we can queer the film ourselves. Like I always tell my students, whether it's my horror class or I also teach an intro to film history class, I always tell them this. I always say, listen, films are Rorschach tests, right? Um, We can all watch the same. And this can goes all the way from the Avengers to Maya Darren, you know, like, if we're all engaged with the film, we're all going to get different things. We may have similar interpretations, but no one has our lived experience. And that is the fascinating part of spectatorship and visuality for me. You know, it's not me making sure that my interpretation aligns with others per se. It's more so that what appealed to, like I'm able to articulate my experience watching it and what it, 
uh, got out of me, which is why even sometimes like I have difficulty. Sometimes I may feel like either a bad woman or a bad gay person for not being as or sometimes you may not connect to a work like you want to because it's done by a queer person or it's done by a female director. But then yeah. other works just you you get that queer context and, and yeah. it connects to you in some sort of struggle and that's just as valid and I think that that yeah. is actually a really interesting conversation to have regarding politics of horror and mm-hmm. the things that uh we identify with and what I you know vice versa what identifies to yeah. us 100 percent. I mean you know I I look at the things that I identify to like horror as a genre you know from a from, from a teenager the reason that I identify with these certain texts has been about me coming to terms with my own sexuality in quite a closeted environment and reading something in those films. But it is also simultaneously an expression of the prejudices that I've inherited from the environment yes. that I grew up in. So, Absolutely. for instance, me wanting to like initially just want to talk about queer abjection in the context of the representation of white men in a J.G. Ballard novel is both an expression of I want to queer this and I have work to do. You know that I, but that my way of seeing this film, uh, of, of this like you know, whatever it is, film text, as, uh, we we still are shaped. You know, and this is the thing, and I think this is why I'm so excited for the conversation we're having now, for the conversation that we're going to have in the workshop, is that it's not the job of film scholars to find the truth of films and cite it and say here it is, I am right. That is how scholarship often has operated historically yes but it's not the truth it doesn't there is no such thing as the truth of this stuff this is for us to interpret and to interrogate our own relationship with it doesn't make you know so yeah so I'm so with you I'm so no I know I know and and not to keep fawning over you but I love that you said that it's an interrogative process because even especially Mm -hmm. because I know the majority of people are going to listen to us are my students I structure their courses around research questions they have to find themselves i don't Mm -hmm. say this is what you should study i'm saying tell me what you like and tell me what you want to discover about it Mm -hmm. because i there's nothing i can do about that that's something that you need to dig in for yourself and i think that is where we have the interesting conversations it's not about mimicking stuff that we've already uh you know taken in and -hmm. of course if we're inspired i mean we should be inspired right but it's more interesting when we actually ask the questions that that we don't feel have been asked or yeah. we don't or we juxtapose the things like and that's why I love the selection that you chose because you know okay Eggers films there may be a podcast out there that has deconstructed Eggers films or you know even raw but yeah. uh then taking it back a little bit to martyrs and then especially just choosing something that is just so overtly queer but also as you said it's a documentary Dracula and um and in a way, it, not only is it a documentary, but it, it's kind of set up to be like this trash, you know, thing to like kind of yeah. take in. And, and you know, 100%. there's no deeper level to it. You know, you're just kind of enjoying the the costumes and whatnot. Uh, like, but <laughs> exactly. But no, but we're, we're, we're going to deconstruct it. Um, yeah. So. So, yeah. So, like, where does this process start for you? Like. <laughs> in terms of I guess um so you you were doing the modules and you were sort of beginning to rear queerness into this and so then how did I guess it 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 really did you begin to get some synthesis out of that or like how did things weave in together for you if it did I think 
uh, in some ways it, it, it worked together. To be honest, in some ways it was just your prompt that then would like made me think, but kind of connect the dots to some extent. But also I was very much, I wanted to choose some stuff I've chosen, like Martyrs is a film I've worked with for a long time. Uh, it's something that is, that is part of the thesis that I approached from- Can you talk about that? Why? So Martyrs, I saw when it first came out uh, mm-hmm. to, you know, it was a big controversy when it came out. I loved yes. it. Uh, I think I loved it more back then in a way, uh, yeah. but it's it's iconic for a reason. And so is. what is, is so special about that film for you? So I think- It's a brutal I film. It, I know, I know. And I, and, I, and I have to, I think sometimes, and I think you probably get this as well, when you're a horror film scholar and you're a horror film fan, you, yes. you start talking about these films and you're like, I laughed at them. And then- <laughs> No, yeah. Why not have seen something like Martyrs? Maybe like, yeah. what's wrong with this person? <laughs> that they are like, I love this film that is full of like very, very, very explicit violence, torture. Yeah. Um, it's very gendered. It's very racialized. The film was banned in places when it came out. It's yes. known as 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 part of New French Extremity because it caused such a visceral reaction at the time. Yes. Um, yes. And you know, I'm very aware as well that, like, for me watching the film, I'm I'm not in terms of watching the film. I I don't identify with a, a subject of violence. I'm not looking at somebody that is like me that is subjected to the violence of that film enact on certain characters so I recognize that for some people this film just might be unwatchable and extremely triggering and that's okay I'm not trying to say that that, that there aren't potential issues in the representation of the film um, Absolutely. but for me what I really love about the film is how when this conversation happens about horror films specifically being too violent or too mm-hmm. extreme I really think you know and therefore we should look away we should look away because this is not right. I'm like, okay, but what about the world that we live in? You know, because we look away then as well, you know? And that's why I, that's why I think so many queer people have gravitated to horror is because it's, it's actually where we, we get to see, we get to see the violence. And that might be, we, we imagine fantasy violence enacted on our, on the, on the straight people that we, that we hated growing up, that hated us, or it might be actually, you know, in this film that is, you know, fiction, it's showing us something of the real of the world that we live in but yes. that makes us uncomfortable. And that is why we want to look away, but that is also why we shouldn't. And, yes. you know, that for me with this film, that's kind of what I think has drawn me to it because I, the first time I watched it, I was just like, oh, wait, this is a lot. I want to be traumatized. You know, as somebody who loves horror films and has seen a lot of horror films, I found it a very distressing first watch oh yeah because there's so there's just so much violence of just one after the other you know you're on you know that you're on that you're in that kind of fight or flight mode it's probably the only time I'm ever in fight or flight mode it's not like I'm like out running in the woods or anything so it's the only time that I'm like <laughs> in this like oh my god I'm so panicked is like watching something like Martyrs and, and normally horror films don't do that for me often anymore because I'm like jaded um yeah no but yeah so sure. when I was looking at it Martyrs was something that I that really became a model for me to try and start expanding the ways that I was thinking about abjection beyond uh, just the individual psyche because I think the film models that in really fabulous ways. Absolutely no, and I love what you said about connecting uh, like the the proximity of queerness to horror and and what 
how that has uh, surfaced and what you think it may be, because I was actually talking to someone yesterday and they were of a marginalized group as well. And they were like, you know, I always connected to the monster because to me, the monster was the truth because I was coded as the monster. And mm-hmm. I think that that is absolutely something that also connects through that. It's like fantasy, but it's also, you know, recognition. I mean, you know, like the whole memification of the Babadook, you know, and then how 100%. like, yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. Um, So I guess to sort of stick it to martyrs. So when you, you know, listed all of the films and I was connecting sort of like the abject and queerness to Mm -hmm. uh, Martyrs, it wasn't the first time I had heard that, but I want to get your perspective on it. So then like, how did, you know, you you have this relationship with the film, you Mm -hmm. wanted to begin to break it down. And so then how did that sort of surface for you? Okay. So Martyrs is something that gets written about a lot in relation to the abject, in the same way that it gets written about in relation to its extreme representations of violence. Um, and it gets written about the abject primarily through this idea of kind of like psycho trauma. Uh, so, for instance, that the, the main character, um, or the, well, who we think is um, the main character when we first start, and I get confused between the two, it's Lucy that we kind of open the film. Yes. We see that, you know, she is she's abducted she's tortured as a child she then grows up in a care institution where she meets her kind of sister wife kind of dynamic with with anna um but but lucy then she is essentially dogged by this manifestation of that trauma which is this monstrous figure that you know sorry spoilers we we kind of learn fairly quickly in the film is a manifestation of the fact that when she managed to escape this torture there was somebody that she left behind. And that woman, the, that, that memory burned in her mind of this kind of woman that she's left to be tortured. Because she's a child, she couldn't, she couldn't take her with her. Becomes the monster that follows her around. And I mean, this isn't like, it really does follow her around <laughs> in a very, very visceral way. And it becomes a what we then realise over the course of the first part of the film is Lucy is self-harming when she's imagining being attacked very viciously by this this monstrous figure, which is just a very kind of literal, physical, uh, embodied manifestation of the trauma she's experienced as a child. And there you have it, right? That's the abject, as Chris Deva talks about it. It is this kind of gruesome body violating another body. It's the it's the the, the surfacing of repressed trauma. You know, you've got all those ingredients there. Cool. For me, what's so interesting about Martyrs is that the film doesn't stop there. You know, you think about that first act where you have Lucy rocking up at this family house. So Lucy rocks up, she builds the entire kind of nuclear family in the house because she believes them to be her abductors uh, from way back when. And then we just have, you know, then you just have this, then what she realizes is, oh, the monster's still here. I was meant to kill them and the monster was meant to go away. My trauma is still here. It culminates in her... um, committing suicide. That, in a general sense, if this was just about the abject in that psychotrauma way, that could have been the film, right? Like, that could have been it. That happens within the first 35 minutes. And then she's done. And then we're like, wait, 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 what? So now what? What happens now? Because our main character's just, just, it's gone. And what are we left with? And of course, then we're left with her best friend, ready to pick up the the mess. And she's kind of just in this house on her own, like, well, what do I do now? I've lived my life. 
for Lucy, you know, I she we definitely get the queer element from Anna. You know, she yes. they they share the kiss, and you, you feel that desire for her. They have both a sisterly bond, but there is also from Anna's certainly from Anna's perspective, you know, a romantic longing for Lucy, which is why which is why she's followed her around while she does all this crazy shit, like right. murder a bunch of people because she's she's so devoted to her. But that's gone. So the object of us as the audience's uh, kind of focus, the object of desire, the object of, the subject, I should be saying, sorry, of trauma. Sorry, that's very bad of me. Subject of all the rest of it. Um, is gone. What happens then? Well, then this organization turns up and we realize that actually what we thought of, of all of this kind of, to some extent, imagined trauma uh, that, that 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 Lucy was manifesting was was materially real. This family that we thought were victims were not. They were employees for an organisation that was that is committed at an international level to torturing women over the centuries in order to essentially beat death. So it's it's, it's a simple premise in that sense. And we then realised that we've got this dungeon space under the house, and all of this to me was like we're really transitioning from. Uh, individual psycho uh, psycho trauma based understanding of of abjecting to a wider systematic structural form of abjection in which this group this population that we might say of you know of women most of which as you see are are not white women right white women are also the oppressors are members of the martyrs organization and of course there's they're wealthy that's a big difference and they you know, this is, I mean, and this is basically just my chapter, really, for the, for the collection. But so that was for me, that's where the linchpin was. It's like, this is what is so interesting about this film. It has this convulsion in the middle that is turning on its head what we expect from the film. We, we lose our main character, we, we lose the trauma, and it, all of it becomes very material. There is a torture basement under the house, there's an organization that pays people to do this. And all of a sudden, you're starting to maybe. See, see visualized the kind of invisible relationship between the capitalist system that we live in and this what we normally now see is this idea of abjection which is normally limited to the individual does that that is so well yeah. done i feel like clapping <laughs> no that that is so amazing i just like i had like where to start you know if anything that explanation made me just think of like do you think in general like horror can or should be used as almost like a Marxist form, uh, a Marxist tool of a uh, revolution almost, because it almost like, even though obviously there's like, Martyrs is a, is a depressing film, it's not necessarily like yeah. an answer at the end, but no. as you as you said, uh, in its twist, so to speak, it breaks its own uh, second nature, right? It, it exactly. makes you, yeah. And so it's just kind of like, that's cool. Like, do, does that happen in other genres? And I'm not too sure if it does. And and I it makes me wonder if like horror and its codification of the extreme, like, is there a way that, you know, we can take that even further do you think that that's a trend that happens or do you think it's sort of like a one-off kind of thing I mean I certainly don't think it's a one-off I think for me I mean and this is something that I feel really strongly about is um you know horror is understudied and there's a lot of stuff that needs to be covered and martyrs is a great an example of the way in which what martyrs is a great example of is 
the horror as a genre in the terms of the, what has been produced from, you know, from all the way back, but particularly from something like, you know, George Romero's Night of the Living Dead has been producing really sophisticated socio-political critique. Right. Horror film studies has not, <laughs> to the same <laughs> yeah. extent. We, we are, and there are some great books out there, you know, stuff like Adam Lowenstein's Shocking Representations, a great, rep- a great example of the way in which you can delve into the politics of horror. But a lot of the work, but what happens is, is that because something like the abject is so strongly identified, and a lot of our tools are, right, same with the monstrous feminine, these kind of like the toolkit of the horror film studies scholar, a lot of them, horror has always had horror film studies, not horror as a genre in terms of the film production. Horror film studies has always had a very close relationship with psychoanalysis. It has been its mm-hmm. primary theory in which to unpick the films. And that makes sense because horror films are traumatic and it is about re- unworking trauma. That is something that is really close. You know, the idea of the return of the repressed, it's there. We see it, it's there in Martyrs, it's there in, 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 in most horror films. And so because they have this kind of easy like relationship that makes sense to use psychoanalysis because it is perhaps the most obvious tool to use in terms of the symbolism and imagery of something like horror, uh, horror cinema, what sometimes gets lost is you know, that there are issues with psychoanalysis. And the main issue with psychoanalysis is, but where is the social? Where is the political? You know, so for Kristeva, she writes about abjection and powers of horror. She then, she has lots of, I mean, Kristeva writes on all sorts of stuff. She writes on semiotics and she has books about culture where she talks about the abject, but her kind of like origin story for the idea of abjection is all in like the psyche. And what that means is, so she writes a book called Strangers to, Us, uh, Strangers to Ourselves, where she talks about the abject and she links it to like xenophobia in France. And she talks about this being like the fear of the other that we all carry inside us. And that's all very nice. And I don't necessarily think it's not a valid interpretation. However, what critics have since pointed out is there's something really scary and, 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 and there's, there's an erasure happening when you can look at the xenophobia of France in the 1990s and attribute that to a psycho individual fear of the other rather than like France's long history of colonialism, oppression and imperialism. Like that is why there is, (laughs) that is the main cause of xenophobia in, 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 you know, Western European countries, the UK, you know, included. That's, that's not because we all like have a strange encounter with the object. It's just, and I think, that's the issue and that's the issue that I take and so within horror film studies you get a film like Martyrs we as critics like to to glorify valorize fetishize the on-screen violence we like to pull out our psychoanalytic tools and say look there's the trauma I found it and it's represented in this symbol and just like you were talking about earlier with your students asking them to formulate their own questions what what I don't feel is being asked of in that kind of material is why am I writing this and why what does this actually tell me other than just fitting into a format of what has been done before, I understand what the abject is. I understand where it is represented in horror films. I see it here and we understand its trauma. What have we learned and how does this relate to cultural political context? You know, this film is, is released in what, 2007? France at that point, there's a lot of stuff going on as there, as there always is. You know, yeah. we've got, you know, really strong uh, uh, anti-xenophobic sentiment we've got you're a conservative government in 2005 you have riots in paris this stuff is not unrelated but yet sometimes the tools that we use in horror film studies they don't encourage us to take those routes 
And so what feels obvious when you actually might watch the film becomes obscured when you go into your horror film analysis mode and pull out those tools. So, so I'm sorry, that didn't answer your question. No, it did. Okay. It did. It did. No. Yeah. If anything, it it like answered it almost better because that kind of brings me maybe to what I think I may want to tie to that. But I think what was really beautiful about what you said is that it's like it, it, and and I feel like this also affects horror film production where they're like, ah, this sociopolitical theme worked for this film. And all we have to do is repeat that. And people don't Mm. realize that it's not just those things operating, you know, the, films themselves if they're ma- if they're made well you know are supposed to operate on like 10 different levels at the same time yes, and exactly. uh and that's why there can be you know a whole anthology written about one film because there are going yeah. to be different questions to investigate because it's not only questions to investigate about the art but it's also investigating the spectatorship of that art 100%. like what is the observer you know how is this in relation to other things and i think that um um, that then ties sort of to maybe I, you may think that this is a weird way to bridge this together, but that kind of talk about class systems and, and mm-hmm. how that's sort of uh, encoded in uh, martyrs and when it's represented above, it actually made me think of Dragula because yeah. Dragula, you know, as you said, it's, it's our most obvious queer thing. You know, we, mm-hmm. we know how it's queer per se, yeah. but yeah. if, anything more than even maybe not more than martyrs but probably on a on a level close to martyrs it's also such a stark representation of class and um and so yeah so i guess let's talk a little bit about i mean how did you figure in dragula here it is kind of like the mm. wild card so i would love it to hear mother, isn't it? <laughs> yeah but i love it i love it so please tell me how it kind of bridged for you i mean so yeah we've got all these kind of fancy new wave horror films doing very interesting things with queer sensibility. Um, and then we have Dragula that is like unapologetically camp. It is reality TV, yeah. which I have to say there's also a bias here because when I am not watching horror films, I am obsessed with reality television. So okay, that's I, great. Like, truly, like if I can, if I can convince my supervisor to let me have a chapter on the real housewives and abjection, I would do it. (laughs) I love it. Oh Um, my gosh, too much. I don't know what I was expecting. I was not expecting Real Housewives. Hey, I'm not glorifying them. I want to pull it apart. And I think it it just comes back to what actually what you were talking about earlier. And that is, I don't think, and I think this is the thing, horror and abject have been like pushed together for a long time. And horror is like the site of the abject. And I don't believe that. I think we need to, in expanding your understanding of what, these tools mean can also expand expand where you find them. Like I think Creed's Monstrous Feminine is an amazing tool. And I think if you applied that to something like reality TV, that would be great. The way in which, you know, that kind of is reverse engineered into standards of beauty in shows like Love Island and, you know, um, The Bachelor, which I I don't watch, but I would watch it if I (laughs) did. Um, was in the years for sure. Um, but yeah, sorry, Dragula. No, that's so, great. And I love that. And before we get into it, I love that mm-hmm. you brought up the monstrous feminine again, because I love teaching them. I, not only do I teach the seven archetypes, but I try to make them focus on, it's not necessarily, even though most of the films are horror, it's about 
codifying female monsters and 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 yes. and and codifying and, and and making uh women the uncouth making women you know the the site of everything that's wrong and that goes way beyond horror and so my oh, my whole point is i want you to rate this monstrous woman in real housewives <laughs> paper <laughs> put it up for a panel but, um, okay. but anyway yes dragula 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 yeah so my two interests combine in the show in terms of competitive reality TV and horror. So already like I'm sold, but then from watching the three seasons before we get uh, Bully Brothers Dragula Resurrection, I was like, no, 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 this is actually incredible. This is part horror film and a really campy boom B-movie horror film, which I love. It's part queer documentary that is really folding in the politics of, you know, um, trans identity, gender, the, the, the ongoing AIDS narrative in, in ways that are just so profound and, and impressive. Um, and actually what you realize as you watch the show is, yeah, you come to this for the reality competition, but you leave with it with a lot more. And in that sense, it's doing the work in a really overt way, more successfully, and I would agree with you, than any of the other films. Because it, it, it's like, you know, we're here, we're queer, and we're talking about it. And yes, we're going to dress up in drag. I mean, another dragon itself is, is something to, I just, there's just so much that, but yeah, so that's why I wanted to put it in. Um, and what I love, so for instance, I think it's really difficult to, not, I think in some ways it's like, I want to talk about Dragon and I don't want to talk about Drag Race. Um, because... Uh, I, can but, I make one comment? So this is my first time watching Dragula. Um, okay. I am not, I'm not anti-reality TV or anything. I just like, it never clicked with me. I had seen episodes of Drag Race, but more so like I keep, since I'm gay, like it's very natural <laughs> that the gossip, you know, like I always know what's happening yes, with Drag Race. Know, my of and so like, one thing as I was watching the Dragula special that I really loved was that they were not afraid to tackle the uh, space of trans women and and mm. uh, drag and 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 you know these gender identities. Whereas I know for a fact that that's like not even supposed to be referenced on Drag Race, which is you know well, this is the thing. Yeah, and and I think this is it's actually really interesting. I think if you were because I'm a, I mean I. So uh, Drag Race has lots of issues. Uh, you know, I think you can come to a point where you can say it, to some extent, is no longer drag. And right. it is much more about, it's the mainstream commodified version of drag. Yeah, it's, that's what It's I was drag as right. mainstream cultural object. It's not drag as performative politics. It's not drag as yeah. centering queerness in a contemporary way. Despite um, it being, you know, very queer, so to speak, on the surf, on yes, the superficial yes. level, but on in full of gays, right? <laughs> yeah, but but as you said, in terms of, of social structure, this is kind of where it gets to the class kind of thing. It's like it's yes. it does it does not represent anything marginalized, so to speak. Exactly, and I think so. As like I say, I want to talk about. Uh, I think it's important to talk about Drag Race in relation to Dracula because actually that's where you can see really clearly how wonderful and queer and how great. Dragula is. And Dragula is also not afraid of, of dragging either. And I think one of the first things that I think is really compelling is you have these two um, judges, uh, the Boulay brothers, who in themselves are just like... Who are a couple! Know, <laughs> and like household names, you know, they're just... It's just... I'm obsessed with them both. But also, this show came out directly of the drag scene. This didn't... You know, whereas you look at something like Drag Race's they, they, they remodeled America's Next Top, Top Model format. 
for mm. a drag show. This came out of, they were running this show in clubs all over the US. They would run a, a Dragula night. They would have queens come up and compete in the categories of drag, filth and horror. And so it was born much more directly and closely out of queer subculture in a way that Drag Race wasn't because RuPaul's own trajectory took him out of drag subculture very quickly and into mainstream culture, you know? I mean, you've yeah. got a straight white cis woman. I mean, and as much as like, you know, Michelle very much is like, you know, I think is seen as like an honorary member of the LGBT community, but she isn't. <laughs> she just, she can't be. Yeah. Um, and just, you can't just be like queer by association. It's not how it no, works. Yeah. Otherwise it, it, a lot of straight people at Pride up. would be. No, it sets up very harmful, uh, you know, relationships and, and yeah. especially relationships in mainstream media. You know, it's, it, again, it's like, you know, who is taking up space? And, and, and that is, and, and so that's also, again, kind of taking it back to drag. As you said, it's sort of impossible not to compare yeah. the two just because, and this is maybe where the queer sensibility comes in, where it's not necessarily Absolutely. tied to queerness. Absolutely. It's a tied, it's tied to the uh, reactionary structure of it. Yes, uh, 100%. Yeah. I think that you're so on the money there because what I think, I think that people get scared of the idea of queer sensibility because what they, what they, and I, I'm rightfully concerned about is this is going to take us away from centering work that represents LGBT people, that is made by LGBT people. And yes, it could be appropriated in that way. But actually, like you say, in this context, what it really shows is there is far more work to be done in producing, you know, queer representation in media than simply putting queers on screen. Because Drag Race has been doing that really successfully for over a decade now. And it's not doing the work that, that Dragula does. It's not. And, it, and there is a queer sensibility and a queer politics that is explicit, inherent, that permeates Dragula as a, as a show that is not there in Drag Race and was never there. And that's where it, then you can start having a really important conversation about. But so, but it's so like for, you know, for instance, I'm watching both seasons of Drag Race that are running now what the running theme of across both is, you know, the, what they're being judged on is their ability to conform to the feminine illusion. And so you have a cis, you know, white woman, you know, you've got Michelle sat there saying, you know, looking at a, a queen, like for instance, Ginny Lemon, who's a UK drag queen. She's a comedy queen. She's, uh, so she's she in drag, but she's non-binary. Um, and she's an incredible queen. Um, and she's not there to represent stereotypical femininity. That's not what her drag is what they want from her and what they push her to do is, you know, put a set of fake boobs on, start using padding, start to see if you can look beautiful is what they actually say to her as if she wasn't already. Forcing the binary. A hundred percent. And so you have that kind of feedback happening on the drag race stage. Okay. Being given by cis women to queer people. It's, it's not right. It's not drag. Yeah. And then you go across to uh, the Boulay brothers and you don't see it so much in the, the special, but in the series, what they say at the start of every judging section is, you know, we just want you to be aware that we are not here to judge your drag. Drag is art and art is subjective. What we are here to judge you on is to what extent did you manage, were you successful in meeting the requirements of the, of the challenge? And like that is really powerful. They, everybody on that stage is validated in a way that doesn't, you know, for being who they are, for being able to represent the diversity of the drag community in and of itself. I mean, you've got drag queens, you, queens you've got non-binary people. Now, what's interesting is that Drag Race is now starting to, you know, for, so, but in the most recent US series, we've got 
um, trans uh, woman as a drag queen. We've got Got Mix, she's fabulous. We've got, in the UK, we have two non-binary queens. But what is interesting is so that they're being pushed into the conversation, and I think it's because of Dragula to some extent, but they are only allowed to participate in the on-screen representation as long as they still manage to conform in their drag to this idea of the feminine, of the hyper-feminine. And so, or, and what's interesting is I think Drag Race sometimes thinks it's doing something avant-garde when it celebrates very skinny white queens for not being stereotypically feminine. And it's like, have you seen the fashion industry? (laughs) That's not what you're doing. It's still racist and awful. But like, so I'm not going to keep talking about Drag Race. That is what I love just on the basis of Dragula. And this idea of the special, the resurrection, bringing back queens from the previous series, which again... Drag Race does it with all stars. They do it with all stars to produce a lot of drama. Here, we get to go into the homes of these queer people. We during get to hear COVID. about their lives. During COVID, they filmed it during COVID. I mean, that in itself, you know, it's just it's so good. Um, and I know that's like, it's not like a particularly, like, I'm not saying much with that, but. No, you are. You are. You know, because um, especially as I read, I, I, I because of the region that I'm focused on and because of who I am as a person, you know, I read a lot of post-colonial thought and, you know, mm-hmm. like queer bodies are colonized, period. And in order 100%. for. Uh, colonization to uh, be successful and and neocolonialism specifically, which is just uh, rampant in how our capitalism works, um, you need actors within those groups. And that is what drag race is. It is the naturalization process. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, that's always actually, I've always felt that even from the beginning, like when it, when, when even when it seems a little bit, it was like on Bravo, maybe a little bit on the margins, but to me, it never felt dangerous. You know, nothing about, you know, I'm not this middle American person that's like, oh, person in dress, you know, to me, as as in my queer sensibility, it felt like, you know, I felt like someone was trying to feed me something that was queer when I didn't feel like it was, even though I guess, and it's coding and obviously is. And so, and that's what makes, uh, you know, I, I can't say that, like, I was blown away by Dracula, but just because mm-hmm. I'm not uh, really into reality TV, but I mm-hmm. really loved its approach. And I think that that is almost more respectful than if I liked it or not, because I feel yes. like it prioritized what was important. It, it, it was even a bit awkward at times. And I liked that, though. I liked that yes. it was just like these uh, queens awkwardly kind of talking about each other, but also like, you know, interacting with each other in ways. And, and it just it felt real. It felt like these were people yeah. that I would have grown up with or that I would have supported. And yeah. this was a really cool project that they were able to do. And, and, and they and they didn't have to, as you say, conform to and they just yeah, had to exactly and i think that and they all had such different stories i loved every single one of their stories every single one of them was so inspiring in their own ways just for being themselves you know and i think um that is like true queer politics that is true revolutionary art you know even if it's as quote unquote like 
base level as reality TV, I, I don't even believe that either. I feel like that is, you know, you could use reality, reality TV as a revolutionary tool if you wanted to. And I feel like Dragula yeah. really uh, pushes that. And I think that that 100%. is great. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I'm so with you. I think, you know, I think the show is so powerful in lots of ways. And I don't think that it is without criticism either because nothing is. Right. So I'm not, I'm not trying to say that they get everything right all of the time. And, you know, that, but we're not supposed to get everything right. That's not what we're doing. Yeah, I think it's making sure that we ask the right questions, that we feel supported to ask those questions. Even if we feel like our inferences are wrong, then good. Let's be wrong. I would love. I I love being wrong, but also love helping people see the other side. And I think that's at least something that. Yeah, I think that's something that we all at least have the ability to do. We can be like, this is my perspective. Uh, You know, let's talk about it a little. Let's mediate it together. And you learn so much through mediation that way and through honest uh, discussion like this, right? A hundred percent. And yeah, I I 100% agree. And that's the thing. So, and I think a way to kind of sum up what Dragula does so well is like, so for instance, one of the queens that comes back to compete is Priscilla Chambers, who, when she competed on her season, um, she was not openly living as a trans woman and it was before she'd started, uh, you know, uh, medically transitioning in any in any sense. Um, and she comes back for the resurrection, um, owning her identity as a trans uh, woman, but also re- wanting to, in her looks, represent the politics, the struggles, the violence, that is bound up in the trans experience uh, in the US and, and, and everywhere. And, yeah. you know, one, they, they, you know, they have to do a series of looks, right? They do a vampire look, they do a ghost look, and they do another Witch one. look. A witch look, sorry, yeah. yeah. And, you know, some of them are just uh, fabulous, uh, you know, well put together references to, uh, to horror cinema, to their idols. Like it's super geeky in some ways as well, which I love. But, you know, yeah. she, uh, Priscilla Chambers does this incredible um, uh, look for, for, for her ghost look where she essentially is performing uh, herself as the ghost of, of a sex worker, of a trans sex worker. And she's walking through, you know, kind of, the, the, she's just walking through the street and, you know, it's, and it's still super campy, right? Because it's, it's, she's illuminated by the flashing lights of, of, of a police car. And then, you know, she pulls out her kind of big scroll where we have the amalgamation of the trans, uh, the trans colors, the trans flag, and uh, the fist of the BLM kind of black power movement. And that, in all of its campiness, and it's kind of the, the, the roughness in some senses, you know, and as a production, sometimes it feels slightly rough in places. Because <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they did definitely. All this, they did all this fucking work themselves. This is not, you know, yeah. commodified, shiny Netflix exactly. drag race. This is we made this, we did not compromise on the length of it. Yeah, we're going to have these really long campy seats. We're, we're keeping them because that's our, it's what we're doing. And, and, but just even that moment, being able as a, as, a, as a drag queen, as a trans performer, then using a floor show to be able to, in a meaningful way, center the, uh, the representation of this group, of talking about the violence that is happening. You know, that for me is so powerful and I don't give a shit whether the, the the look is slightly rough. You know, you've got another contestant in there, which is Victoria Black, who does three really wonderful looks. And she, you know, she works for a, a very well-known theme park. And so she has, you know, she kind of has a background in prosthetics. So 
she has an access coming into the show to a level of capital uh, and kind of cultural capital that enable her to produce looks that I would say are on par with the stuff that you'd say on Drag Race, where you have now, when somebody gets on Drag Race, they have a whole team of people putting them together in order to get them onto the show. And it's just commodified. It doesn't mean anything. And I think, you know, you look at somebody like Victoria Black, who's fabulous, by the way, I'm not trying to uh, detract from her artistry because she's incredible. But, you know, in the drag race format, she would win um, because were her looks the most political? No. Were they the most meaningful? No. But were they the most well pulled off? Yes. Are they the most polished? And do they have the most money behind them? The answer is yes. And that's what I love is that's not how it goes on Dracula. And that it just yeah i'm obsessed you know I, yeah, yeah you really respect uh them even as auteurs you know whether you know absolutely. usually that term is you know commodified only to a very certain subset of usually white men but uh and of course they're white but you know there there is still so much marginalization and queerness and they are even though i, I know that they probably are pretty well to do they're still very much tied to that struggle and I think that that is something uh that's so important like it doesn't necessarily matter I mean it's impossible for any of us right to sort of like stay under this under the the bubble you know and and necessarily we don't want to stay under that bubble right we we want to break through and it's like after you break through what do you do it's like you said when uh RuPaul quickly got out of drag subculture uh, he decided to commit to a certain, I mean, it's a fracker now, right? So like he, yeah, he decided he to go where he wanted career. to go. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and I think, the venture capitalist, like, yeah, it's. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the Boulay brothers, as, as you said, it, it, it not only, because they're almost not even the focus of that special either. It's these other, yes, it's exactly. these other voices. And uh, that's why I said that when we were talking about martyrs and class, that I kind of view Dragula as this really interesting, like reinterpretation of it, because um, yeah. what was prioritized were these, uh, you know, almost like humble queens, you know, and, 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 and it was just their authenticity that was uh, yes. important, not necessarily, as you said, the the amount of capital they had access to and i yeah like that the production is, value the you know yeah. and, and you know they, they self-fund it you know the the, the, the yeah. winner of of the the special wins twenty thousand dollars that's just out of the boulet brothers pocket that's yeah. not you know they have battled to put this show on and continue to battle because what they refuse to do to some extent is to because they would have to relinquish so much creative control in order to move the show mainstream. And I think it's interesting that even if you watched the show from series one to series three, there is still an inevitable slight slippage in that sense, because the first season is like, you know, it's homemade and it's cool, but it's like, we've got Scott on stage. We've got, you know, Queens that you know they they have these really extreme elimination challenges where you've got people physically for you know they're not <laughs> this is not you know this isn't prime time for fourteen year olds are going to go to drag con this is you know this is like oh this is uncomfortable um, and you know it's queer it's like it's, the, it's like John Waters right there you yes, know exactly in in a meaningful way um, and it's just I really and I really would encourage anybody that that you know to stick with it if you start the show and think i can't watch this because of the production value don't be a snob watch it you know recognize that that's some like internalized prejudice from netflix 
and watch the show because it is so great. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've watched Drag Race as well. I'm very, this is the thing. I'm not here to like, I'm not saying this is like, Drag Race is, is amazing. And Drag Race is, that kind of binary way of thinking is not queer in and of itself. Yeah, like, exactly. They just watch it, watch it all and then come to your own conclusions. But yeah, Dragula for me, in some ways embodies what queer horror and the politics of queer horror should look like. Yeah, Because um, it's fun. It doesn't lose the fun. You know, it's not like, yes, we, we're talking about AIDS. We're talking about the financial struggle of these queens. We're talking about all of those things. We're talking about trans lives, be, you know, uh, not being valued. We, we, those things are all on the table. We still get the campiness. We still get the drag drama. We still get the looks being turned. You know, it for me, it ticks all the boxes, you know? Um, yeah. I love it. Watch Dragula. <laughs> yeah. Which Dragula is on. We should tag them. <laughs> it's on Netflix, right? So I think for you guys in the US, it's it's Netflix, yes. And but um, the special itself is actually on Shudder. So uh so yeah. Yes. Yeah. Brilliant. So um yeah. Um to I guess then begin to tie back to the other three properties and begin to sort of like mm-hmm. circle around uh, a conclusion sort of. So like one thing that I loved that you just said about Dracula was that like this is what queer horror should look like, right? Mm-hmm. And what I do think is interesting about the other three films uh, to certain degrees of uh success is that they tackle queerness to some respect. Um, And so I guess let's begin to unpack that. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm especially curious to see if like you were approaching Egger's work as like him in general, or do you think that it was just like these two films Mm -hmm. that spoke to the same sensibility? Uh, Yeah, so I I guess for me, because I come from English lit and then kind of cultural studies, I'm really like not well versed in auto theory and it's never been yeah. a way that I've thought through material yeah. and I don't really like to. Um, this is what Good. I'm trying to kind of having to figure out in my own thesis. I'm going to have this really eclectic mix of case studies. Somebody's going to be like, why are these all together? And I'm going to be like, because I want them. <laughs> and that's what we <laughs> like all I'm making it gay, okay? <laughs> I'm making it gay. They're all gay. And also <laughs> that's the reason that ev- that's everybody's reason. They just try and say it's something else. But so <laughs> no, I don't think there's something special about Eggers and I'm not here to kind of hold him up as a post boy for that's the more interesting answer to me honestly so I can't wait to hear you unpack this yeah because he's you know he's not queer and you know his next film I think is going to be in like it's like I don't know about Vikings or something I was like oh really oh god (laughs) who knows but what's also really interesting though is when you look at interviews with people like Pascal Augier and the the directors associated with New French Extremity as a movement yes you know Pascal Logue openly says, you know, my dream is to go and make a big Hollywood production. Yeah, a lot of always. Them, and a lot of them go on to do it. You yeah, know, they that's do. What you, and, that in, and then the films are not as good. But that in itself, I think, is another reason why I'm all for like... I mean, it's something that in literary studies is something that happens much... Should happen more, but in contemporary lit studies is like just accepted. Death of the author, fuck them off. Do we want to do with the text, basically? Yeah. Um, and, and that means that, so what it, I think what it means is it's not about forgetting the context, but, you know, we're not here to read the director's mind and I'm not interested in doing that, you know, in the same way, what, if I'm interested in, in context, I'm interested in wider social, cultural context, not, I mean, in general. So, yeah, I love, I really enjoy both of these films. I mean, I watched The Lighthouse again the other week and I was like, mm, 
this is quite boring. Um, <laughs> I actually watched it just for this. Um, I'm going to be real here. Um, Clinton, my, my best friend who I usually do the podcast with, he loves Robert Eggers. Uh, oh, really? But okay. I, in general, I have a problem with Ari Oster and Robert Eggers. Robert Eggers less so because I drag feel like them. Robert Eggers... this is a queer horror episode. <laughs> right. No, Robert Eggers, I feel like just makes uh, boring films. I do think yeah. The Witch was a bit <laughs> more effective than The Lighthouse, but because mm. I didn't like The Witch as much as I, as much as I wanted to, that's why I hadn't watched The Lighthouse until literally just for this pod. I watched it. Yeah. Um, um, and I was like, okay, The Witch was better. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But I really don't like Ari Oster because uh, here's my main thing. Uh, I don't believe in the term elevated horror. I think it's a bullshit mm-hmm. term. Um, it, it implies that horror has never been the subversive, uh, really deep film with, with, with a deep genre with very powerful ties to subtext when hello, like the very first horror movement arose out of World War One and expressionist and, and, and trying to make the cinema as traumatic and visceral as possible. How is that not subversive? And how yeah. is that not elevated? That's almost elevated than anything else. You know, I mean, films aren't plays. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Films aren't plays. Like, are you telling me a drama because it has a monologue is more elevated than a horror? I don't believe in that um but of course it's it's taken hold with uh after the witch after hereditary um even get out now now the like kind of race uh aspect is like oh now black people can make elevated horror no fuck you bill gunn has been making quote unquote symbolic horror or elevated horror since the fucking 70s bro like it just like this this whole that oh now horror can be considered seriously and like like i said i don't feel like robert eggers uh or at least maybe he shuts up more enough for it that i don't notice it as much from him but ari yeah. Oster, i swear like jerks off to but yeah, yeah like 100%. yes i have this like midsummer <laughs> yeah and just like no and like yeah. it, another thing you. that he just did he's about to make a film that he uh he made a short of in 2011 and now he's saying he's remaking it as a four-hour film whatever um but he whitewashed that film that film has a black cast and now he recasted it with white people and i'm like i think i think there we go right yeah no there you go yeah yeah yeah. so um so that's kind of my beef a bit but yeah um, Robert Eggers, like I said, I hmm. don't judge as much. <laughs> I don't but, care sorry, about Robert ahead. Eggers. I think that's the thing. And I think you're, I'm so with you. And I think that whole term, that whole like Guardian reader term, I don't know whether that's like in the, that no, idea yeah, of yeah, elevated yeah, horror is yeah. really just like, um, it's, and I think that's what's interesting. I think this just comes back to like, watch Dragula and forget the production value because there is something about the refinement of a certain aesthetic that's something that Ari Aster works on very you know, he thinks he's being very clever in, you know, making his houses all look the same. And it's like, isn't it elevated? And I'm like, this is an example of the way in which kind of like white supremacist norms yes. permeate aesthetics. Yes. And we say that something like this that has clean lines and really high production value is elevated. It's not that different from, like you say, celebrating a film that is whitewashed. And those things are not unrelated. They're intrinsically bound up in one another. And I mean... Yeah, I'm not, I'm particularly not a fan. Uh, and I don't, and I don't, and I think it's also now becoming fashionable in horror films to say that we're not a fan of the elevated horror films. Some of these films are excellent. You know, they're yeah. really good. There is value in analyzing them. 
and they're still analyzing value and analyzing them even if we don't think they're good you know that's yeah, no. not that's why I was excited to talk about that. these. Yeah. yeah, no, that's why I was especially excited because even the witch I, I use for the monstrous feminine because I'm like, hey, it's a pretty great example of the witch. It's, like, it's great. <laughs> and, I love and, it. And even though, like I said, I I was a bit let down by that film. What I do like about that film, though, what, is let, that what let it down for you. Just I sorry. was really wanting more, I guess, spirituality in it. Oh, okay. um, I kind of was wanting more of this, like, this is going to sound terrible. No, I shouldn't say this. Okay, never mind. Um, I was about to drag a religious group. I'm like, let me not start doing that. Um, no, I guess, like, I, I guess I sort of expected it to, because uh, I, I don't, I'm not going to say I wanted it to be more macabre, because I actually do think it's quite macabre, but I think mm. I just wanted sort of more exploration of her psyche, per se. But what I was about to say about the film that I like um, especially given the fact that it was directed by a man is that it does really seem to center the object on the gender but not necessarily mm. in an exploitative way it really shows yes. uh, in the reactions of the people around her and that's something that yeah. I can actually really appreciate about the witch and then with the lighthouse though I like I get it <laughs> I get the lighthouse <laughs> I, I especially know, yeah. get I in get ways it. I feel like the lighthouse is the gayest of all like oh, even sure. more than Dracula yeah for sure yeah yeah yeah, yeah, um, yeah but did it resonate with me whereas like I wouldn't say the witch necessarily resonated but um I feel there's you. a reason why I teach it because I feel like yes. it, it it shows it really clearly but the yes. lighthouse I still I'm struggling to embrace a bit more. I, I think it's okay. funny. I feel that. Yeah. I think it's. I mean, like I, I say, I rewatched. I thought that, that they were all supposed to be English, by the way, in, in the lighthouse. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, that's a really good English accent, Willem. And then I looked up that it was supposed to be New England, and I'm like, <laughs> okay. Yeah, if you say so. Um, yeah. So yeah. So okay. I I agree with you in all senses, and I rewatched the lighthouse, and I I taught the lighthouse, I taught both this semester actually in that queer horror module. And what was really interesting actually was that the students, I was like, isn't the lighthouse gay? And they were like, why? And I think what was interesting about it is this because you had Robert Pattinson, like hetero poster boy turned old. I think they they literally really struggled to even see him as a as a queer character. So Maybe. even though you've got all of this really overt queer subtext and symbolism, being like he's gay, it's I have like a question. okay, I love questions. Do you feel like because I don't think we're that far apart, and I think you're a little younger than me, but I don't think we're like a generation apart. Um, do you think it's weird that like Twilight has sort of had like this cultural, <laughs> like 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 young kids love Twilight, yeah. and I'm like. What? Right. <laughs> what? Yeah, 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 yeah. And so, like, the, the fact that you said that—that that you think that they're like incapable of seeing them—because even when Twilight came out, like, we were—I I think we were like teenagers, early adults. Yes. Um, like, Twilight was gay. You know, like, like we, we, we knew we, we, all of us knew that Kristen was gay. And then and obviously, you know, I do believe the relationship was real, but even like, you know, Robert Pattinson glittering, like, I'm sorry, we all thought that that was queer. We, we, you yeah, know, yeah. and it kind of, and, and it was really ironic because uh, Twilight is Mormon uh, fan fiction, like, like really? straight up. And, yeah. uh, but it felt like subversive for the queer community to be like, yeah, it's gay. It's gay because it's, it's yeah. also like not real. Like this heterosexual uh, <laughs> image is like, not real <laughs> i think it's um, funny actually i think for me i think you're right so i would have probably been more like 
13, 14, around the time that yeah. the was coming out. Yeah. But, I mean, I was, I mean, it's sad to say, but, you know, I was a huge Harry Potter fan. Huge. No. Like, I was obsessed with the books. Um, oh, I love it. Um, so, yeah, so I was, and I mean, like, you know, went off for the midnight, you know, releases of the books. Hi. My, I was, okay, so I actually, and I love to tell this story, so I'm so happy I'm getting to tell it and it's being recorded. Um, so there's in the UK, there's this show. I don't even know whether it still runs, but it was on like children's BBC TV. Okay. It was called Newsround. And they used to do like kids' news, right? So when the last book came out of J.K. Rowling's high school, and I promise then we'll talk about <laughs> the lighthouse. When this book came out, they like emailed all of like the kids that signed up to their mailing list to be like, what did you think of the book? And I was like, on I have a and then they were like, okay, can we come and film a segment in your house? Oh my God. So when it went out on Newsround, so that's my claim to fame. Before this podcast, that was my claim to fame. Um, my claim to fame uh, is, you know, this, you laugh. I was 13. Uh, I lived in Orlando, Florida. So actually to even make you more envious, like I, I did the first day at Harry Potter World. Like, oh, like it's been it. this whole like anti-trans uh jk rowling is a horrible person is like very personal to me but yeah, um yeah, also yeah. fucker i'm very like like making this like official. i say we don't care about the authors right exactly we only care about the canon thank you okay that's anyway clear, Harry um, Potter. yeah Exactly. That's the only option. Um, anyway, so uh, so I lived in Orlando, Florida, and uh, we had this venue called Hard Rock Alive, which was basically, you know what Hard Rock Cafe is? Yes. Okay, yeah. So it was like a venue for that. We had a famous one in Orlando. And so in 2004, there were a bunch of uh, indie, you know, that was like the Strokes, uh you know that 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 kind of era of bands, mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. the Killers came, and the Killers cool. you might know are my favorite band. Um, I didn't know that, but cool. Yeah, I run. Uh, I have a zine with uh, eight <laughs> other people, two of them in the UK. Uh, what else do you run? How much time <laughs> do you have? <laughs> I just have passion projects. Um. Anyway, so uh, but yeah, during one of their songs, I was thirteen. I had braces. I had giant glasses, and I was barricade. And oh this was for MTV. They got me crying, saying I'm every obsessed. single word, and so. My only time I've ever been on TV was on MTV for that Killers uh, Barricade thing. I'll, I'll show you the video one day. It's it's still, it's up on YouTube. Okay, um, so we're both famous is what we've established. You, <laughs> at, you at, 13, at 13, at <laughs> 13. Yeah, I was probably exactly the same. So me, see, you were a cool teenager. So meanwhile, you were like, I love the Killers. You were on MTV. I'm a fucking CBBC news. I'm like, oh, oh, I would awesome. prefer that. <laughs> I yeah. look and, so bad. <laughs> yeah. Hey, don't. I, you will not see mine. What I was going to say was that it feels very important in a queer episode since we've managed to take it to Harry Potter. Like, fuck J.K. Rowling. Like, fuck transphobes. Fuck turfs. Yes. Like, it's the whole yes. thing is vile. And I'm not yeah. saying that there are not also kind of like essentialist racist elements bound up in the literature, but we'll do what we like with it. I don't. J.K. Rowling you know, fuck capitalism. She doesn't own it as much as she likes to. This is why I'm such, it's like, this is why I think Beyonce is a great example of somebody who like lets their art and music speak for itself without trying to speak to it, without giving a million, you know, like, so I mean, she's, I don't know how, I don't know how we've now got to Beyonce, but what I just mean is that you don't see Beyonce now giving like a million interviews on Lemonade. She lets it stand out there to be what it is. People can read it how they want to read it. 
And I'm very much like, please stop tweeting about like, oh, I thought Dumbledore was gay. We don't care. Like, we I don't, don't care. care. Yeah, like, we can I do just, our own thing. Yeah. Like, yeah, the books are cute. Just stop, you know? Yeah, exactly. But anyway. anyway okay, what? so the lighthouse. <laughs> anyway, yes, yes. Robert Pattinson, heterosexual icon. This is what I was going to say. So when you were looking at Robert Pattinson in Twilight being like, oh, he's so gay. I was like, he's Cedric Diggory. I I kind of I thought it was weird when he was cast because I was like oh Cedric Diggory really but I also really I hated Twilight I still hate Twilight yeah, yeah. like I like I hate everything like the fact that it has like cultural relevance to Gen Z why you yeah. know like I wish I, I even hate the Hunger Games but at least the Hunger Games I kind of get you know yes. like like yeah. right I, I heard that Myanmar the the citizens of Myanmar are using the Katniss Everdeen salute to protest and I'm like see that's crazy like when is a glittery vampire ever going to be relevant except in a queer context <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> and that's my thesis no yeah. but that's so yeah. interesting that you that that i because I, I would not be shocked if maybe that's true because i guess to uh to a younger generation robert pattinson is someone very different than he an is to person, us. first of all so they're like he's old whereas like for me i'm like you know him as the motherfucker that broke fk twig's heart okay yes that is yeah well no again you're cooler than me so that's how you remember him i will <laughs> he's just cedric diggory that's just what he is um but so the reason that i think what i like about the lighthouse and what i and what i wanted to talk about with my students was and and it links into to, to the monstrous feminine is we have the mermaid right yes we have this monstrous feminine figure why is she there what is the purpose and i think I think what's really interesting, right, is that what I like about it is that it's doing something interesting with something like the Creed's Monstrous Feminine um, in the way in which what you're, what you're using is you're creating a monstrous figure of the mermaid in order to represent the suppression of his own homosexual desires. So the, the mermaid becomes, is both a sexual object and a monstrous figure. Um, and actually what we're seeing is his desperate attempt to sexualize. Uh, that is ultimately unsuccessful, which is, I think, a really nice way of using the monstrous feminine in a non-stereotypical way, because, I mean, yes, we still have the issue of, you know, we're talking about white male homosexuality once again with straight actors, you know, being used and straight direction, all the rest of it, and the and the mermaid is a figure, not a character. Um, and there, there's a politics for that as well. But, you know, the masturbation scene so that was so that was like what i called this segment for the teaching was mermaids and masturbation and i think all the students were like uh, and i was like no really stay with me okay stay, <laughs> i promise you we're gonna get there um but that masturbation scene i think that failed masturbation scene over the mermaid figurine i think there's some really clever work being done however i think it knows it's clever um and it's funny now putting it into context of something like martyrs I'm like, okay, so the lighthouse is stretched out into two hours, but actually ends where Martyrs does 40 minutes in, right? Yeah, we just have this like elaboration of that, you know, traumatized, you know, struggle with identity, repressed trauma from, you know, whatever happens in his past, that means he's escaping. And actually that's where it stops. Um, and that is, it's, and I think that's why I like it as a teaching aid in some ways, because yes. it's a really nice way yes. to just look at like a contemporary horror film that is really uh, reworking and working with something like the monstrous feminine in an interesting way but it's also not doing a huge amount more than that no 
yeah, um, I like I said, I actually feel like he makes really concise, like like I I was almost gonna bring up the lighthouse when we were talking about martyrs because because of exactly that moment. It's like a yeah. very contained kind of thing. Maybe as like personal preferences, would we like stand it, so to speak? Maybe <laughs> not. But like the thing about teaching aids is sometimes it just needs to be encapsulated that simply. And I feel like that's why I can respect Robert Eggers a bit because I feel like yes. while as you said, I do think that he is aware of what he does. Um, I yes. think that it's also kind of clean filmmaking in the sense that it, it's great examples and it, and it shows yeah. it really well. It, just like in The Witch, that sort of evolution and, mm. and how it grows and grows and becomes like an amoeba. And then the certain codes that are uh, utilized to reflect that is just it's well done. Uh, yes. But it's thesis statement. Absolutely. And I think this is a real example. And I do this with my, so with this module that I'm doing with English, which is, you know, putting bits of theory with fiction text is, you know, I'm like, I'm, I'm choosing these texts because they're great examples of, uh, they're great ways for you to work through the theoretical material that, however, does not necessarily mean they're going to make the most interesting objects of analysis if you want to take this theory forward and use it in your work. And I think that's something that particularly with the lighthouses you know it's it, it i think it i think because he's straight perhaps he thinks he's being clever than he is when actually these are very yeah. <laughs> but also like it's these things that might seem like revolutionary or mind-bending to a hetero person or some like it's something that is actually these are just like you say very familiar tropes within yeah. queer films for queer communities and, for, and in terms of queer responses so it's kind of like oh yeah cool cool that he did that what I really like about the witch, um, I think, disturbed a lot of my students, was I think they kind of thought I was going to be like, okay, so now we're going to talk about the witch, and I was like, no, we're going to talk about the baby, and everybody was like, oh, <laughs> not the baby, like not we don't, baby. Have, not the baby, exactly, that's like what you're watching, you're like, not the baby, um, because of course, like, baby doesn't is not allowed starring role, like, or baby is, you know abducted and used as a face mask for witch right so it's like oh oh no and the baby is so cute right and like i'm a sucker for that like heteronormativity like babies are cute and like i don't want to see bad things happen to them in films but that for me is the is like the queerest moment in the film more so than than the monstrous feminine configurations and the witch and her joining in them whatever like what i think is really interesting about that is that you know what we're getting in that film is a look into the kind of origins of this very rigid nuclear structure and its and its relationship to orthodox religious practices and like aggressive heteronormativity and you see that being undone and the first way in which that is kind of shockingly disjointed is the baby dies yes. um so and i think that for me, you know, so I, so what I did with my students is that I made them rewatch that scene, which I think they were unhappy about, I was like, well, <laughs> you know, um, and, and it was so funny. So I made them watch that scene and then we talked about some Lee Edelman. So um, Edelman, I don't, so I came in contact with him with my master's writing about, you know, new, new what's the book called No Futurity for, it's a queer theory book. And basically he writes about the symbol of the child and what the child as a symbol, how it functions politically within, within the political sphere, which is heteronormative. And what he says about this child is the innocence. And it's what he says is that on both sides of the political spectrum, and I think, you know, you see this, you know, obviously every time there's an election, is 
you know, you have whatever happens, it's always for the future of our children. So whether you're fighting for what you see as like socialist left-wing aims or whether you are fighting, you know, or whether you're fighting for, you know, like pro-life bullshit, like either way, it's like we must protect the children and their innocent and the child. And that idea itself is so anti-queer. And so uh, Edelman sets that up as saying, well, actually, when that gets violated, you know, queers, queers not for kids, queers that hate kids, like that's where we start to find queer modes of resistance. I'm not doing it for my future children, I'm fucking doing it for me. <laughs> because, the, you know, and I think what that for me was what I wanted them to kind of, what I found interesting about the film is, okay, the baby goes, the baby's mushed, oh no, what, could we read this as queer? Uh, in a way that maybe it wasn't intended to be. Um, but then what was really, I felt awful was, so at the end of our seminars, we like, students are allowed to stay on to ask questions and just chat informally about the film. And one of my students stayed on and was like, oh, I really enjoyed it, but oh my goodness, I really struggled to, to watch the witch and rewatch the clip. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry. I, you know, I always say trigger warnings in case you don't want to watch them. And she was like, I know, but like, I've got a three-year-old. <laughs> She's like, so I'm just like, oh, I'm just so, I've got this new little baby in the house. I think um, I'm finally might have been younger than three. And she was like, I just, just my mother's instinct came out. I was like, oh my God, like, I'm so sorry. Just spent an <laughs> I'm hour. sorry, but it's a I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. Yeah, exactly. Just, like, just to be clear, like, I don't wish any violence on children, but in terms of representation, I do, because it's queer. So <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, Reese, you're meant to be best friends. That's something I would say. <laughs> be like, if it's fake, kill it. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, see what happens. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, no, uh, you know, that's a, it's really well said. I mean, it, 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 okay, wow, we'll just start with that. So, like, I think, like, one thing that we also have to acknowledge, and I think maybe we've been hinting at this throughout, but maybe we haven't called it out directly, is that in order, especially as queer theorists or queer researchers or however we want to call ourselves, like, we have to reckon with the stereotypes. And, and that's just Absolutely. it, as you said. Uh, th I mean, that's the only way that we can even reclaim it to be useful right yeah. and um and i mean even the history of witches so to speak it, it, they're female only societies and mm -hmm. so it, it's already as you said like there is queerness in the monster feminine and whatever but as you said i think there's it's none more so embodied than in the harm of that child and i think that that is actually yeah. really uh prescient and yeah. um it kind of in a way finally sort of takes us to raw where uh raw you know does have moments of of explicit queerness and whatnot but what you what you just said about about like the maternality and and uh harmful you know harming the baby with raw like it's an interesting and barbara creed has actually spoken about raw and she said that oh, oh really yeah, she did this incredible talk about it where, and, and this is what I'm about to reference. Uh, if you Google like Barbara Creed, Raw, Julia, it'll pop up. Um, but she said something like, while it's obvious that the theory of the monstrous feminine should fit into Raw, and mm -hmm. be, you know, it's a female monster, you know, she 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 is violent, whatnot, blah, blah, blah. She said that she, she purpose, you know, 
the monstrous women on Christova's ideas of abjection where it's all coded as villainry but raw mm. in and of itself is you're you're rooting for yes, that it, it, it she's blooming into a person so she's kind of like i it's hard for me to kind of reconcile how that film does fit into the monstrous feminine because mm. it is her identity uh that she's trying to reconcile away from the abjection and it's not necessarily ab- you know it's just how uh she's learning to like become herself and and be true to herself and i thought that was so uh profound on her part because it's just sort of like then what is raw so i guess let's we'll we'll tie it up with that yeah yes you're so good at this um (laughs) yeah exactly like i think uh, yeah agree i think what's interesting though i think that's really interesting to hear creed uh, kind of talk about how it might not fit into her category as as kind of like another example of why for us as like contemporary film scholars and you know film students and, and, and that are using cultural theory like you don't have to retain the orthodoxy in which they're first presented like Creed's initial monstrous feminine is so important it's such an important text when it comes out you know and the work that it centers but you know you look at something like Carrie and look at something like Roar and the monstrous feminine is, 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 is so there in rule. And just because it isn't negative doesn't mean that we can't still talk about the monstrous feminine. You know, it's like that in itself, I think, is, is like what is valuable about this film. I mean, I'm, I'm like really interested to see what you thought about this. I think the first thing that I loved about this film and what I think is actually quite the bit that I, I sent you almost, the link. But oh, yes, go so ahead. Much. Um, yeah, because I've probably like already hashed it. Um, but like is that idea that the queerness I think sometimes comes from the moments of comedy. Yes. Um, in a film that is like so fucking dark and violent. And you know, yeah. really, I mean, I definitely I, I watched it and you know, my I don't know what your experience was like, but me going off to uni for the first time from South Wales, I, I mean, I feel like everything's relative, right? So in the UK, I went relatively far away <laughs> because the UK is tiny, but you know, I was from South Wales, I hadn't really ventured out of that bubble and then I went up to Durham which is like right up in the north it was like five and a half hours on a train that's a long way that was a long way for me and I I think the film captures so brilliantly that that experience of alienation that you first experience as a student but the humor for me is what I was like this is what is making this film interesting because in this film of like drudgery and violence and and like real struggle um you know in terms of finding an identity we have these like really funny moments between her and her sister, particularly, which I just think are like gold. Like when, when her sister, when they end up in the hospital and their parents come and they wheel the sister out, I couldn't stop laughing. I just thought it was the funniest thing. I, not the funniest thing I'd ever seen, but I was, I was so amused. And, you know, I, I love horror films that do that. Get Out is very, is very good at doing that as well. You know, we get the horror, we get some kind of critique, but alongside it and bound up within those things, we get light relief, we get humour, you know, we get, you know, a, a Jeffrey Dahmer mon- monologue, which is actually a comedic soliloquy, like, you know, that's, and I, that's what I liked. Um, that's my, yeah. that's all I've <laughs> No, I love that. Uh, I mean, I think uh, Raw is actually a very funny film. I absolutely agree with you. Um, I mm. also agree that those feel like it's, I mean, honestly, like probably the most, difficult part of that movie for me to watch and it may be the same part for you is where she accidentally cuts off her sister's finger 
right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. yeah, okay, okay, okay. Um, and then she begins to eat it. And I like yeah. had to look away most of the time, but I was like also laughing at the thing. Like, yes. like it was just like absurd. <laughs> it's just totally absurd. And I yeah. think um, you know, Julia said something really great in an interview that's up on YouTube. Um, she said something like it wasn't her goal to like make a horror film. She wanted to make a coming oh. of age story about a marginalized woman. And to her, yeah. she was like, what is what is the most horrific thing probably any of us can think of eating someone? And she yeah. was like, and, and, and then like the really interesting part and sort of why I argue that uh, the um, film film is a part of the monstrous feminine is that then at the end you find out that it's like a hereditary uh mm -hmm. maternal kind of thing and in a way that again imbues it not only with like a bit of the archaic mother but it also makes me think back to like female only society like what is yeah. you know yes. not more queer than this we're only going to eat the men even though like yeah. that's not necessarily obviously like she eats her sister or whatever but like it, it's also a very gendered approach to coming of age and i think it's just yeah. a really unique one where again yeah. like i i can't say that it was necessarily an enjoyable watch because it made me very uncomfortable but yeah. i really respect the way that she utilize those tools and like i said yeah. in many ways it feels like a rape revenge film without ever using the the mm -hmm. tool of rape because it, it yeah. really does feel like a reclamation through violence but it's never yes. even like you know how violence is supposed to like make uh these people unlikable it's never necessarily it even un exactly it's just like oh, okay this is their nature where i think like yes. julia has a famous quote where she's like sympathizing with the cannibal doesn't make you a monster like she's no, like absolutely. that that it that in and of itself is indicative of queerness yes i mean that's i think what i really enjoyed and was kind of uh really interested in trying to figure out was the kind of relationship between um the main character and her gay roommate um and the way in which she kind of when she's kind of really falling into her kind of cravings that we see her really kind of like as apex predator kind of stalking him yes. and what uh but i think so interesting to make him gay and not yes. just your stereotypical because i think that's what again makes this film slightly different to the kind of there these films have been made before in terms of you know that this 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 vibe like you know the kind of cannibalistic themes the self-violation or you know like the consuming oneself like that's something that new french extremity was just been doing for a long time in really yes. interesting ways mm -hmm. but what takes it out of that very straightforward narrative is not just having him as like the a symbol of, of, of hetero straight you know it, he, he his his gayness prevents him from just like kind of congealing into an archetype on screen that yes. she then is 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 then very obviously consuming actually their their, their relationship is much more complex but the scenes in which she's like kind of looking at him playing football and she's kind of like salivating but she can see like the pot you know that that representation of like a predatory uh woman in this kind of unassuming body in and like you say I, that that sensibility of it being a really clever film in terms of that representation and doing what you're saying that like a very prevention film tries to do and actually never really succeeds to do because it it's still i think when those kind of more overt films that center 
I mean, I'm not saying that they that they can't, but often it becomes a film. That- I'll say they can't. I, I honestly, I feel really strongly about this, especially yeah. because I feel like it's been more of a trend recently, especially with like Jennifer mm. Kent's last film. And I know, I think there's a yes. French film called Revenge that came out rather recently. Yes. And, you know, I, and, and, and it's always an awkward spot where, you know, you, you sort of want to validate it, but I also don't think it can ever be validated. I, I- for me, I, I I agree fully in the sense that, and, and I think that's what, what rule evidence is, is that like you can explore these really difficult themes, you can present strong, aggressive, predatory uh, female figures, female forms of representation that are speaking to rape culture, that are speaking to these issues without having to fetishize and center something so traumatic because exactly. inevitably that is always going always to be able to... It. Exactly. Yeah, and you're and you're making a spectacle. You're exactly. putting it on screen, and, and you know that goes back into a very long racialized history as well, exactly. in which we 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 make a spectacle of the oppressed group or individual that is suffering as a yes. as a mean, and and it doesn't do the work. It never does the work that never. you think it's going to. You know, yes. it didn't for the abolitionist movement, and it's yes. not going to work now. So, like, Absolutely. I'm I'm fully with you on that, hundred uh, yes. percent. Um, you know, this conversation, what you said a little bit. So, like I said, a lot of my discomfort with this movie is not with this. I think it's honestly a well-made film, uh, but yes. it's just like I felt like my body is violated. Um, yes. And I know that earlier you said that, you know, like you love martyrs, but obviously you couldn't necessarily identify, mm-hmm. you know, you didn't want to put yourself there, which I understand. So I have a question and maybe you haven't seen mm-hmm. this film or not, but I'm curious. Okay. Did you ever see Knife Plus Heart? No. Oh my goodness. Okay. So I, 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 you have homework. This is your homework. Okay. So, okay. I love and, homework. And this was 2018. Uh, Jan Gonzalez, who is a French mm-hmm. filmmaker. Um, he is also, do you listen to M83? I do not. So you're okay. so much cooler than me. I don't know. I'm not cool. I'm not cool. I'm old. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, he, I was just going to say he's M83's brother and uh, M83 did the score for this film. But anyway, so Knife Plus Heart, it stars Vanessa Paradis uh, as well as a lot of other French actors. But it's about this lesbian woman who makes uh, gay porn uh, in the 70s. And someone begins killing the stars to her porn movies, uh, Mm -hmm. which are all gay men. And they're all killed in very specific ways that, um, you know, that are penetrative of the Mm -hmm. gay body. And I watch it with my straight friend, uh, a dude. uh, And and he was like, that was probably the most uncomfortable thing I ever had to watch because the gay body is mutilated so much um and and Jan is a gay man and everything and and so like and it's been a film that I've been like pretty obsessed with because I just feel like it tackles a topic that I like you hinted at like it's it's difficult as spectators often with women we feel it immediately but with knife plus heart I didn't feel that danger even though like you would see it on screen it is an extremely violent film it's very much a queer film like not only made by queer people it has very strong queer sensibilities but it always just made me wonder like I wonder if this like whole body uh, violence really is tied to the binary like that. And so mm. I, I've always, so I may want to ask you about it in case you had seen it. So please watch it. I will. I'll watch it before the next time that we speak because it sounds great. And I, I, do you know, it's ringing a bell. I have a feeling that this might have been on the watch list. 
yeah. all the queer film, um, you know, as an optional watch rather than. Um, but yeah, it sounds great. Like I say, I'm the, I'm the least like you can't say well read, well watched, well watched yeah. uh, film student. But oh my god, it sounds great. I mean, yeah, it sounds. No. You know, it's, it, it, it's probably really like this. Say, it oh, feels like great. the only like gay slasher that I would say to you know you you hear that yeah. word thrown around often, but it's the first because it is a slasher. I would say it's definitely a slasher, but it's the first one that I feel like was genuinely like gay. You Ooh, know, like. That, yeah, because yeah. it's my least favorite subgenre of horror. Yes. I, I mean, I it's, it's not where I go. That's not my go-to. You know, exactly. Um, it's especially because it's it's always usually done through such a superficial codes, like in a drag yeah, race kind of way. Like obviously, yes. this is this, this is that, or you know, it's done in oppressive ways. But this is the first time where I felt because even the film form itself. I mean, it's a narrative, and and I don't want to spoil it too much, but it doesn't necessarily tie things up neatly, so to speak. Ooh. It's very. Okay very expressive as you said that and that and that's when kind of going back to like the first question that we sort of thought of like what is that queer sensibility it Mm. is that marginalization you know it is that uh repurposing of of things that are are not obvious you know the queer answer is never going to be the first answer you immediately think of yeah i think that's so true and i think that's very true of rule just as a film what you think might be the queer answer it won't let you have it uh, yeah. Because it, it like it does that complicating work, and, and for me, something that I'm still trying to work through. But I really, what I found was like, oh, this is such a moment that I need to come back to and think about. Is when she's first starting to have her craving, she steals the the, the beef burger. Yes. The and then they sit down, and she sits down, still thinking about the fact that you know she wants meat, and then she kind of just ends up involved in this conversation at the table which is a really fucking weird conversation where you've got this group of trainee vets. And I looked it up because I was like, I, I need to just remember exactly, but there's a lot of different threads. There's, she sits down, they're talking about monkeys. And then some, uh, this you know, straight guy who she later uh, bites part of his face off, um, he's like, um, he says, he says like, do you think a monkey can get AIDS today? Um, if you treat a monkey in a zoo or African reserve, are you as careful as a doctor doing normal surgery? And they start talking about that's how the AIDS uh, epidemic began because a guy had sex with a monkey and then they're like, mm. she's like, no, that didn't happen. That's not happening. Um, yeah, which is telling in and of itself, you know, uh, we know this, but I always tell my students, like, nothing is ever said on accident. Nothing is ever written on accident. So, you know, for Julia, because yes. I'm pretty sure Julia also wrote it, for Julia to include that in that specific scene, as you said, as she's like trying to like, like, there it is. You know, that's the subtext like that there that is where you read those intersections where, as you said, it's not whether you have necessarily a queer writer or queer director or or if there's a queer body, whether it's. uh, Yeah, exactly. It's those. um, I uh, read a lot of Walter Benjamin. Uh, I Mm -hmm. I think he's like he's my J.K. Rowling (laughs) pre-trans. No, like I I really love him. I've only like this sounds so dumb, but, you know, I've only read recently discovered him and I'm like ah I get it um mm. but he always talks about those moments of history that are mm-hmm. lost and that we have to recover by looking through art and seeing what is not being said and you know he he makes the argument yeah. for historical materialism but I use that logic for queerness so often and, yeah, and only queerness are, those things are, are bound up and I think yeah. that's you know I, I think yeah I'm so with you I think yeah and that's what we should be doing with these films. And I think that example in, in Raw, you get a discussion of 
AIDS, yes. bestiality, yes. Uh, human rights, because the conversation then ends with, you know, her saying, well, okay, but if a monkey is cognizant, so if you, uh, you know, sexually assaulted uh, a monkey, would somebody, and then another woman on the table says, oh, so that's the same. You're, what you're saying is it's the same, the sexually assaulted one. And she says, yes, it is. Aren't we all vets? It's unresolved. It's not necessary to the narrative. It could just as easily have not been there. But oh my fucking God, we've yeah. got so much happening. Such yes. an uncomfortable conversation. So yes. many different layers. And so poignant to have a group of trainee medicine students. You know, yes, it's veterinarians having this conversation about the ethics of, you know, consent about the you know the the boundary between what is animal, what is human, what is and then we have AIDS kind of then literally kind of infecting the conversation and you've got a gay man at the table obviously feeling very uncomfortable like why are you looking at me you know like <laughs> so much and yeah. and I would say in general as much as I think you can't again I wouldn't want to like produce a taxonomy of where you find those moments they're just they're dotted yeah. around I do you think you know sit table scenes in general particularly in queer films or queer adjacent cinema lots happens at the table just like lots happens at the table in real life the conversations that come out I mean it it makes me think of something like Tangerine and the table episode with the kind of, you know, the guy going back to his family and, you know, not to go off on another tangent, but, you know, that that theme for me is something that I want to go back to and think about a lot more with Raw because that was when I truly started to feel uncomfortable, really uncomfortable. Yeah. And it's the kind of conversation that you would hear potentially. And, you know, in the yeah. mouths of medical students and the, the potential comment that's making, and, you know, the, med, the, the medical, so, you know, medical scientific discipline complex as you know not infallible as these are the these are the veterinarians of tomorrow they could just as easily be doctors right yeah and they and they're coming out with all these really fucked up practices and prejudices and they're working them through but you know not really being able to work them through because they're just trying to survive in medical school so interesting Yes, absolutely. I don't think you could have picked more. You know, I, I was very stoked for this and I couldn't wait to see how they were all going to be put together. And I think you've mm. done such a really great job over the course of these couple of hours, just being able to like see how it's not necessarily in the codes that you scan immediately. It's in these mm. moments and how to read it. And I think you made really great arguments for all of these films. And I, you, you made me look at them differently. So I want to thank you so much much for uh sharing that uh perspective because it's so beautiful and it's inspiring to me as well thank you so much for having me honestly it's yeah. such a pleasure I'm I'm like thrilled to have been able to have met you and <laughs> this is just like I feel like the first of many conversations that we will, that we will yes be yes we're gonna do one on knife plus heart after you've seen <laughs> it <laughs> after I've done my homework yes yes no absolutely. yes um so I've like taken up your entire night I'm sorry <laughs> it's not your night but I know it's like your weekend I'm oh so no I'm gonna it's snowing tomorrow so I'm gonna go make sure I have food and then I'm gonna probably splay out with my cat <laughs> all right well thank you so much Reese this was incredible I had so much fun and I think that it was also really great learning tool as well as a really strong uh exhibition of just how brilliant you are so thank you no thank you it's been an absolute pleasure really